This evening's talk is called Starting All Over Again. And last night I already introduced this idea in describing the tradition of, of Zen, or as it was in China when it began Chan, that this was in a sense a movement that broke with the way in which Buddhism had been developing and evolving in China for nearly 400 years and had reached a point where there was, as it were, too great a contradiction between what was going on amongst the professional Buddhists in the monasteries and the actual existential, spiritual, religious needs of ordinary Chinese people. And as a way to resolve this contradiction, there emerged a movement, both within and outside the monasteries, to go back to where the Buddha himself had begun. So there was a movement, as it were, to start all over again, to go back to that primary act of of just sitting dispensing with all of the uh, complex theoretical apparatus of Buddhist philosophy and metaphysics and confronting anew the question of what it means to be human of what it means Uh, to live this brief life here on this earth with other forms of life, humans and animals, the environment. What does that mean? And just as the Buddha, or the Buddha-to-be at this point, Siddhartha Gautama, likewise reached a crisis in his own life where he had kind of exhausted all of the possibilities open to him at that time. He'd tried the different forms of, of spiritual practice. He had no doubt studied far and wide. And yet none of the approaches available to him in his time was really capable of addressing or responding to the primary question that his life posed to him. And at that point of crisis, I wonder in fact if it might in modern terms have been closer to what we call a breakdown. He felt that he had no choice but to simply confront in a very... um, unambiguous, in a very confrontative way, the fact of his own existence on earth. And likewise, in the beginnings of the Chan tradition, Zen tradition, we find uh, a similar move. And in terms of our own situation here in in the modern world, I think there are some quite striking parallels. For the Chinese, Buddhism was an alien tradition. It was something that had been imported from elsewhere, from a culture that was in quite fundamental respects rather different from what um, had developed in Chinese civilization. And yet at the same time, there was a sense of something lacking in Chinese tradition, 
something that was not answering the kinds of questions being posed at that time, at least amongst a certain community of people. And they remain true to that uh, trust or inspiration they felt in the Buddha's life and the Buddha's teaching. And yet they rejected, pretty much wholesale, all of the superstructure of the religious institution called Buddhism. Now likewise today, Buddhism is is, uh, increasingly widespread in our world, in our modern world, in the West. But it is also something that has been imported. It does not have roots within our own Western tradition. And perhaps we feel or at least I feel, that there is both something very um, inspiring, very appealing about this tradition, but at the same time, there seems to be an awful lot of unnecessary, (coughs) confusing superstructure. In other words, metaphysical beliefs, One might think, for example, of rebirth and karma, multiple realms of existence and so on, which are very much part of the Indian Indian cosmology, way of seeing things, but are quite alien to the kinds of discourse that we're used to in the 20th century or since the European Enlightenment, essentially. So is this perhaps also not a moment where we might likewise follow that example of the early Chan uh, teachers uh, and go back to beginnings to dispense or at least to experiment with dispensing with all of that elaborate complexity of Buddhism, all of the theories and philosophies and concepts that we might have already absorbed and go back to where the Buddha himself, where the early Chan tradition began, namely a return to the basic question of our life itself. And in this way, when we ask ourselves a question such as, well, what is Zen? What is Chan? Is it really about um, perpetuating and continuing certain practices and beliefs and forms that um, have developed and been maintained in China, in Japan, and in Korea? Is that what the practice of Zen is essentially about? maybe tweaking it here and there and giving it a slightly kind of modern Western spin, but nonetheless remaining true to a certain set of, um, of forms. Or is what Zen really is that willingness and that um, courage perhaps to go back to that starting point and to put aside everything that we've learned, everything that we've become accustomed to and familiar with and perhaps even slightly attached to and go back to the beginning, to that experience of a man sitting beneath a tree I'd like to return to that um, experience that Siddhartha Gautama had and look at what he himself uh, described as the experience of awakening or enlightenment. I prefer the word awakening. Because I feel that 
the, the early tradition, uh, what is sometimes called Theravada, but really the tradition that's preserved in the, in the Pali Canon, perhaps gives us the, uh, the closest glimpse of what that originary or original insight of Siddhartha Gautama, uh, what that was actually like. And I'm going to offer some uh, thoughts about a fairly brief passage that we find in, in the Majjhima Nikaya, in which the Buddha is speaking of what happened to him as he sat beneath that tree. And again, I think it's useful here to put to one side all of what one might have read or heard about enlightenment. And just listen to what the Buddha himself here is saying. He says that what he has um, arrived at, he says this Dhamma that I have arrived at, is is very hard to see. But at the same time, it's something that is, is felt by the wise. And he uses the word feeling, Vedana. It's something that is felt, that is sensed by the wise. But it's very hard to see. And he uses a, a string of words like deep, um, sublime, subtle. And then he says that people fail to notice this. They fail to uh, see this Dhamma because they are attached to their place. They delight and revel in their place. And in doing so, cannot see this ground. Now, what he's speaking of, therefore, is that what occurred to him, or what happened to him, in this experience we call awakening, is first and foremost a shift of perspective. One might metaphorically think of it as a kind of seismic shift, a kind of a, a shifting of the tectonic plates within him, in which his perspective on life ceased to be one that was governed by a certain sense of place and became open to what he calls a tana, a ground. Now by place, we can understand both our sense of physical location, where we live, where we work, the place with which we feel identified, be it Britain or America or wherever we live, or our town or our village. But place can also, of course, mean the place we have in society, our social position, where we stand in the world, where we gain a certain um, reputation, where we have certain credentials, where we're respected, where we somehow fit in. That's another kind of place. Or a place could also be um, our, our sense of religious identity, my sense of being a Christian or a Buddhist or a Jew or a Muslim. That's also a place I have in the world. And in a way, that's getting rather closer to what perhaps we think is most important and true to who we are. 
these core commitments and values and beliefs. They can also become a place to which we can become very attached. The whole notion of place has to do with uh, adopting or assuming or inheriting uh, a certain kind of identity. I am an English person. I am a writer. I am a uh, teacher. I am a Buddhist. All of these are correct. They're, 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 they're entirely appropriate ways of talking about who I am but at the same time they don't really go very deep they're more credentials uh, uh, criteria uh, aspects of identity that we, we, we identify with we take on board and quite easily we can become rather rigid and fixed in those, in those identities. It gives us a sense of being secure in a world that is anything but secure. So it has a function, it has an importance. But the Buddha sees that this whole uh, process of identifying ourselves with a particular place also has a kind of blinding quality. It closes us down. It might make us feel uh, more secure in ourselves, more at home in the world, but the price that we might be paying is that we lose touch with the ground of our existence. So what is this ground that the Buddha speaks of? He uses this phrase in Pali, itta pachayata paticca samuppada. One long string of unbroken syllables, which would literally translate as something like this conditions that, conditioned arising. This conditions that, conditioned arising. That is what he understands as the tanha, the ground, the foundation. The word tanha also, incidentally, uh, means the uh, in musical theory, in Sanskrit musical theory, refers to something like the keynote or the tonic. In other words, the kind of uh, the key tone that runs through a piece of music. There's a sense of a certain tonality to this ground, a kind of resonance with this sense of ground. But what is perhaps curious about this notion of ground is that it's not very much like a ground at all. This conditions that, conditioned arising. What is striking about this passage is um, the is the emphasis the Buddha places on the word this, ida. This is a word, or that, that always refers to some specific thing. This conditions that. Eggs condition chickens. Seeds condition plants. And so we can go on and on and on. The ground is not some fixed place where we hope to secure something relatively permanent. But rather the ground 
is the actual process of specific causes giving rise to specific effects. And this is very much a departure or a break from the Indian uh, religio-philosophical doctrines of his time. In the Upanishads, which were already present at the Buddha's time, you have a sense of going in a totally different direction. You have this famous passage in the Brahidjaranaka Upanishad where the process of enlightenment or awakening has to do with recognizing that I am not this, I am not this, I am not that. It usually goes under the heading neti, neti, neti. I'm not this, I'm not that. That spiritual practice is seen very much as a dissociation from identity with the phenomenal world. And by this process of disassociation, bringing one more and more to a consciousness of what is lasting and eternal within oneself, namely a kind of spiritual essence or a soul that is by nature other than the passing, fleeting world of things. And a lot of religion, including Buddhism, uh, tends to slip into this kind of default view. The liberation is somehow about um, liberating the mind or the spirit or the soul from its identification with the things of the world. So the Buddha's shift from a place, a fixed place, an identity, is not a shift to something which abandons all sense of place, all sense of belonging, but rather it's a movement to recognize the flux of life itself. This conditions that, conditioned arising. It's uh, an acknowledgement, a fairly deep acknowledgement, that what he experiences within his body, within his feelings, within his thoughts, within his senses of what he sees and hears and smells and tastes and touches, all of this is endlessly unfolding, generating consequences, effects, which in turn fade away, only to immediately reveal their own effects, their own consequences. The word conditioned arising, sometimes it's translated as dependent origination, um, is a rather dry and abstract expression uh, that certainly not in any sense uh, idiomatic. I think perhaps the word that captures it best in just ordinary everyday English is the word life or the flux of life. What the Buddha has awoken to is this fluctuating ground a ground that's continuously disappearing and re-emerging, disappearing and re-emerging. It makes one think perhaps of the famous river of Heraclitus, the pre-Socratic philosopher, who says that one does not step into the same river twice. There's something very fluid about what the Buddha has woken up to. The very opposite of a fixed identity or a fixed place. 
Now this is likewise a move that is quite characteristic of early Zen. Rather than speaking of uh, terms found in Buddhist philosophy like emptiness or uh, universal mind or karma or impermanence which are all pretty abstract ideas what is striking even slightly shocking about some of the early Zen uh, dialogues is their insistence upon uh, the, the, the immediacy of things in the world the actual bits and pieces of life so we have, uh, this, is the, this is a koan uh, which comes from the writings of a Chinese master called Yunmen. Uh, Yunmen, that's Umon in Japanese. Yunmen was once asked, what is the highest teaching of all of the Buddhas and the patriarchs? And Yunmen replied, cake <laughs> or why did the famous Khan why did Bodhidharma come from the west the cypress tree in the courtyard now, now this is very characteristic in, in, in the Zen dialogues um, we're constantly being confronted with specific things Cake, trees, bowls, grains of rice, cloths, chopsticks. This is in very striking contrast to uh, classical Buddhist sutras, which tend very often to uh, speak as though the ordinary objects of the world almost don't exist. The discourses take place very often at a, very, a fairly rarefied, abstract level in which the specificity of actual experience is barely alluded to. And a lot of us, a lot of people I know who try to read the Buddhist sutras, often come away feeling that this is a rather abstract and somewhat arid world that they're being drawn into. And when one first comes across a haiku or a Zen koan, what is often most refreshing about it is this sudden entry into a world of recognizable objects and things which are named. A lot of this has to do with the fact that the Chinese um, are very much rooted in the tradition of Taoism, that the Chinese uh, literature, poetry, uh, the visual arts is very much concerned with seeing the ordinary objects of life but depicting them in a way that somehow reveals the sheer mysteriousness that they're there at all. I think a great deal can be learned about Buddhism, not from its texts and its theories, but from its artistic expressions. The iconography of Buddhism, or its, uh, its visual and architectural expressions, are in a sense a kind of parallel discourse to the more formal uh, sutras and shastras and so on. 
Um, earlier this year, in January, um, I was in India. And uh, for the first time, I visited the caves of Ajanta. Maybe, maybe some of you have been there. Um, cave is actually not quite the right word. These are, Ajanta is a, it's a valley, and at the end of this valley you have this high um, cliff, sheer cliff, that runs in a kind of curve at the end of the valley. It's made of black basalt, very hard, igneous rock. And the early Buddhist communities carved temples out of these out of these cliffs. They made uh, uh, temple spaces as big as this room by chipping them out with chisels and pickaxes out of the basalt rock itself. Um, which, as you might imagine, is a, is a hell of a lot of work. Now, what they, what they tried to, uh, what, the, what they sought to do was to create uh, an exact copy inside the mountain of a temple, a Buddhist temple of that period. In other words, they, when, you sat, when, when you sit in these things, you have the impression that you are in a temple. You have the pillars running down the middle, which are totally unnecessary structurally. Um, you have carvings, you have stupas and so on. It's, it's a total replication. It's a negative image of a temple. Now, what is striking in Ajanta is to compare the early art, the early temples, which go back to about the second century BC, with the uh, cave temples that were constructed in the 5th, 6th, 7th centuries AD. And there you get an extraordinary uh, visual depiction of the movement in Buddhist thought from simplicity to complexity. The early temples are totally unadorned. There are no images. There are no decorative motifs. There's a kind of purity, a kind of simplicity that honors the space itself. But when you get to the later works of the Mahayana period, then all of the pillars are highly decorated. There are friezes and sculptures and Buddha images running right round the walls in the middle. It's as though you've gone from the Reformation backwards to the Baroque. Now, the early temples are the ones that I personally find to be the most um, engaging. There's nothing to distract the eye. There's nothing there that will draw the attention to a particular decorative or religious element. One is just in an unadorned and very beautiful space. What happened is that Buddhism became more and more um, interested in representation, in figurative design, in the Buddha image, the Buddha form. And the simplicity of that space was totally lost. And I feel likewise with uh, these early accounts of the Buddha's awakening, or these early um, Chan Zen uh, uh, dialogues is that there's something very unadorned, something almost um, 
or the French called dépouillé, um, completely without any kind of embellishment, nothing to distract you, just a simple, open space in which whatever occurs is occurring there and then as it is, coming and going. You're only aware really of your body, of your breathing, and the space in which that takes place. Now whether or not the artists who designed these temples were deliberately trying to create such an effect or not, we cannot know. But there's something very resonant in those spaces with Yunmen's cake, with the cypress in the courtyard, with the idea that one awakens not by, or one becomes enlightened or awakened, not by gaining some privileged knowledge of some higher truth. And it's, it, it's worth pointing out that in the passage where the Buddha describes his own awakening, he doesn't use the word to know or to understand, and he doesn't use the word truth. He doesn't say, I came to know the truth. There's none of that language at all, which is a kind of metaphysical language. But he's saying that I moved, I shifted from obsession and attachment to a particular place to an awakening to a ground. But a ground that is constantly vanishing, arising, out of conditions, out of circumstances, out of all of the complexities of a particular moment, the piece of cake is there. This is the way I imagine it. That you and men sitting there, got a little table like this, and there's a bit of rice cake there or something, glass of water. And when he's asked about these great truths of the Dhamma, he brushes that aside and points, I imagine him pointing, to what's on his table there in front of him. It's even said in the record of Yun Men that he forbade his disciples from taking notes, something we allowed. But the human being being the human being, one of the monks apparently... Uh, made a robe out of paper so that he could scribble down what the master was saying. Cake, how do you spell that? Yeah, okay, got it. <laughs> so the ground the Buddha speaks of um, is actually very much a groundless ground. It's a ground that is much more like water, in a way. Um, it's not something that uh, is incapable of being a foundation for your life. It certainly can be. And I would argue the, the, uh, the teachings of the Buddha and how they subsequently develop in different cultures um, are rooted in such a ground. Remember the Buddha uses this other image. He says that his teaching is like a, a raft. A raft, again, is something very, um, uh, very temporary, something that you cobble together out of materials that are just lying around. And he says, my dharma is like a raft. You, you can use it to get from one side of the river to the other. But once you get to the other side, then, so, then, then the idea of then holding onto this raft and carrying it wherever you go is somewhat absurd. In other words, his teaching can, um, can help you negotiate and 
cross a body of water. And again, the image of water. When the Buddha speaks of, um, of someone who has understood this experience he's had, like himself, he says it's like entering the stream, which again is a, is a water image. Um, you have to kind of find a way to be with this shifting, fluid, poignant, ever-changing reality with the kind of skill a fish would have in finding its way through a river, a stream, or like one of those insects, that long-legged flies, or a water boatman who, 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 skirt, who skid across the surface of the water. And again, there's something very Zen-like about that. There's something... Again, you find in the dialogues of Zen, which are not concerned with coming up with the right answer to some usually enigmatic question, but learning somehow to respond to that question in a way that's appropriate to that moment, that that is authentic, that is true from your own experience there and then, and it's also in accord with the situation as it is at that time. Another statement of Yunmen, um, I think the question is very much the same as the last one, what is the highest teaching of the Buddha or something like that? And Yunmen says, <clears throat> an appropriate statement. So he doesn't say, oh, the highest teaching of the Buddha, that is the teaching on emptiness or dependent origination, or bodhicitta. But he says, no, what is the highest quote-unquote teaching is what's appropriate, what works, what the situation calls for, something that might be quite inappropriate in any other circumstance. So this is very much about and I think Zen illustrates this very beautifully, is it captures what it's like to live from this groundless ground. It doesn't try to come up with overarching theories of what life is all about, or what is the nature of reality. It's not interested in those questions. It's concerned with how do we live optimally, appropriately, in a shifting, ambiguous, unpin-downable kind of reality. I think it's entirely understandable that we find perhaps that approach rather unsettling. Uh, we seem to want to have grand theories of everything, we seem to want to know exactly where we stand, where our place is, who we are. This is probably not only a, a social need, but very probably a biological need. So it's not a question that we very melodramatically reject any identification with place or role that would be just going to the other extreme but rather living those roles inhabiting the places where we live with much more lightness with much less uh, clinging on and grasping holding tight being afraid that our certainties might be challenged, being afraid that our uh, privileges might be curtailed. And I guess we can probably all sense what that means. So the practice that we've, we've been doing today and the practice will continue through the week um, has very much to do with, with noticing how the mind so readily, 
we see this in our, in our wandering thoughts and fantasies, is trying to clutch hold of something relatively fixed. Some image of oneself that appears to one to be very attractive. Or trying to find some perfect situation that we fantasize and daydream about. Rather than paying attention to the fact that we're breathing, the fact that we're sitting here, the fact that there might be a rather uncomfortable pain in our lower back, the fact that the rooks are cawing, the fact that the wind is howling, that it's cold outside. And just in the same way the Buddha speaks of his awakening being this shift from a fixed place to a groundless ground, our practice here too in a way seeks in each moment to return away from those fixed places, those places which the ego's identified with, and returning to this groundless ground of rooks cawing, of knees aching, of food being swallowed when we eat, of what it's like when we take a pee early in the morning in the cold loo. That's where we turn our attention. That's what we embrace um, in this practice. It's a return, therefore, to uh, an encounter with the, uh, the sheer specificity of things, the particularity of things, without feeling we have to name them or control them or have relationships for or against them. But we have an opportunity on a retreat like this just to come back to our own beginnings, to start all over again. And if we are going to start all over again, we need, in a sense, to come back to our origins. And our origins, in a way, lie in whatever is actually unfolding now. There's a, and I'll conclude with this, there's a, a dialogue in, the, in one of the Majjhima texts, in the Pali, where the Buddha's speaking with a man called Udayin. And Udayin uh, is, is trying to get the Buddha to uh, re- report something about a past life or something. And the Buddha says, let go of the past, Udayin. Let go of the future. I will teach you the Dhamma. When this is, that arises. When this is not, that does not arise. Now curiously, he doesn't say, stay in the present moment. He says, pay attention to the way the world unfolds. In its specificity, this gives rise to that. Idapachayata, this conditions that. To allow ourselves to, in a way, become the participants that we, in fact, are with the unfolding of life itself. To be engaged with that, to see it, to feel it, to sense it, to touch it uh, as totally as we can. Um, That's all I'm going to say now. Um, We have a few minutes if anyone has a a comment or a question. I wanted to say a cake cake. is the most mysterious thing. Sometimes, for me, it's moving from abstract to specificity. It's not concrete. It becomes more mysterious. Mm -mm -mm. And sometimes in that vein, I think, could karma, rebirth, be apprehended as a myth, as a poetic Mm. thing, not literal. I wonder whether it's sometimes the passage of being from literal to might be from literal to more aesthetic. Mm-hmm. 
symbolic. symbolic yeah. Yes, perhaps. <laughs> um, it, it's certainly a tempting way to go. Um, because it means that we don't have to somehow get into this aversive relationship, this rejection. Um, no, this no, karma, rebirth, all these beliefs, it's just a load of nonsense. But we can say, well, maybe it's a way of talking um, that we be, must be careful not to take literally, but to see as somehow, as you say, more like poetry, um, more a kind of symbolic language. Um, but I'm not so sure about that. I, I wonder if that's not a bit of a fudge, an unwillingness perhaps to just um, let go of those ideas. Um, I have a feeling that what we probably are groping for, maybe much in the same way as the early Chan people were, is we're looking for another language. We're looking for a language that is both uh, true to our own, our own culture, our own experience, but is also somehow inspired by these traditions, be it Buddhism, be it Christianity or whatever. Um, it somehow has its roots in a much longer continuum than that of our of just our own particular time here and now. Um, to symbolically reread the tradition is one way which has in fact often been done. Um, but I wonder if that's still somewhat of a halfway house. Um, what I like about Zen is that it, it, it discards a lot of this stuff altogether, really. Um, and it seeks to find its own voice. And what's striking about the early Chan records is that a whole new voice comes through. It's not an interpretation of an earlier tradition. It's a, it's, it's a, it's a new articulation. It's a new vocalization of something that you can recognize those Buddhist ideas of impermanence and suffering and all that stuff, dependent arising, but it doesn't have recourse to that uh, form of words at all. And I find that's possibly what is most, for me at least, is what is most engaging about that tradition. Darius. Um, you, you mentioned that Chan used the resources of Taoism to reinvent Uh-huh. That's a good question. Um, well, I think the... I mean, first of all, Taoism is... On the one hand, it is a specific religious or, let's say, philosophical um, way of looking at the world as recorded in certain texts, like the Tao Te Ching and so on. But Taoism is also a way um, of talking about the kind of uh, the sort of popular folk culture of China. And in that way, it's just a metaphor for what might be called the, the Chinese genius. Now, likewise, I feel in our own culture, we have any number of um, sources which reflect the genius of our own, you know, the Judaic tradition, the Christian tradition, the Hellenic tradition. And it's extraordinarily rich. And I think e each of us, in our attempts to find a voice for our, our, our Buddhist, quote-unquote, experience, uh, will draw upon different sources. For some it may be poetry, I think that is a very rich source. Um, we have a very, very rich poetic tradition. It may be other forms within the arts, literature. 
but it may also be in narrative, more modern narrative forms like film or theatre. It may also be, um, and again, as I found a great deal of um, value in certain movements in Western philosophy and psychology. At the moment, I'm, I'm, I'm rereading Richard Rorty, of all people, and the, the neo-pragmatic tradition in America. Um, but I think it's a very individual process. I think each of us um, will seek a voice, a language, that somehow resonates at an equivalent pitch, both within our, our spiritual experience that we might identify as being Buddhist, and our capacity to articulate that in the uh, in the social world that we inhabit now. Um, again, I think our religious traditions too, the Christian traditions, the Jewish traditions, um, there are all sorts of uh, insights and metaphors and images that we can draw upon. So, and for the sciences too. In a sense, I think there's all, it's, it's almost overwhelming the possibilities and perhaps confusing as to where we're going to find that voice. Uh, briefly, then we have to start. Well, that's right. Yeah, you see, I, I, to, to, for me, I find that I mean, I'm not a, I want, I'm not trained as a scientist. I'm, it's not my my background. But when I read, and I read quite a lot of popular books on science, which try to unpack quantum theory and evolution, and the the, the picture of the world that is revealed um, in these uh, texts. It provokes in me a sense of, of, of wonderment, a sense almost of mind-stopping uh, awe, uh, in a way that I don't find when I read classical Buddhist texts, for example, or religious texts. I find that the way in which the world is revealed to us uh, through, through, the, through the natural sciences is a world of far greater and more mysterious richness than is suggested in uh, traditional religious explanations of how the world came to be and what the world is. Um, so yes, uh, I, I, the, the important thing I feel is to... Um, is to see, let's say with the practice of meditation. I think the important thing is somehow to uh, to bring one's to 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 to, to learn to, to be with one's experience in a way that is somehow more in accord with what the Buddha called this groundless ground. In other words, impermanent, poignant, also shot through with pain and suffering. That's another very important aspect. Um, that's fluid and so on. And wherever we find, um, whether it be in poetry or whether it be in science, we find um, accounts or descriptions or visions of the world that resonate with that experience. There I think we can not only find confirmation but also find the sources or the potential sources of what uh, Yeats called um, a language of spiritual conviction. 
Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.